Welcome to the fifth episode of the Dumberton Oaks Byzantine podcast series. I'm Anna Stavrakopoulou, the Program Director in Byzantine Studies at Dumberton Oaks, and we are joined today by Dionysios Stathakopoulos. Hello, my name is Dionysios Stathakopoulos. And Alex Feldman. Hi, I'm Alex Feldman. Dionysios Stathakopoulos is Assistant Professor in Byzantine History at the University of Cyprus. He has written two books, edited three volumes of essays, and published some 50 articles and book chapters on the social history of the Byzantine Empire, with an emphasis on famine, disease, and epidemics, the practice and practitioners of medicine, as well as poverty, charity, and remembrance. He is currently working on a history of wealth, consumption, and inequality in the late Byzantine period. His short history of the Byzantine Empire, published by Bloomsbury in 2014, has been translated in Estonian, Modern Greek, Turkish, and Chinese. And Alex M. Feldman finished his PhD at the University of Birmingham in 2018, where he worked with Archie Dunn and Ruth Macritis. He is currently a Francis Yates postdoctoral fellow at the Warburg Institute at the University of London, where he is finishing the monograph version of his PhD thesis entitled The Monotheization of Pontic Caspian Eurasia, 8th to 13th centuries, which will be published by Edinburgh University Press. This work compares the Judaization, Christianization, and Islamization of Khazaria, Hungary, Rus, and Volga, Bulgaria, respectively, and challenges the standard periodization dividing late antiquity from the early Middle Ages. He is currently preparing his new project, tentatively entitled, Orthodox Mercantilism, Political Economy in the Byzantine Commonwealth, 11th to 15th centuries. They will be discussing Marcel Moss's The Gift, which was originally published in 1925 with the title Essais sur le don, Formes et raisons de l'échange dans les sociétés archaïques an essay on the gift, the form and reason of exchange in archaic societies. The essay was later republished in French in 1950 and translated into English several times between 1954 and 2016. The gift has been very influential among anthropologists, philosophers, political activists, and has had an impact across humanistic and social studies in general. They'll answer questions like, what is a gift? What are the unwritten laws that regulate the exchange of gifts among individuals across social classes? How valid are these laws, both in the Byzantine era and today? So today we will be discussing the gift, this famous text, The Gift by Marcel Moss, that Professor Stathakopoulos has selected for our discussion. And I would like to ask you, Professor Stathakopoulos, Dionysius, if I may, why did you decide to select this classic 
book in general, in anthropology, in, in uh, Western knowledge of the last 50 years, let's say. Why did you select the gift? Thank you very much, Anna. I think, you know, this is such a wonderful idea to be asked to talk about a book that is not of our trade, of our field. And so I was very excited um, about this prospect. And, and this is a book that I genuinely found made a huge impact in my work, uh, in my thinking. Perhaps it hasn't so far found its place, you know, in my, my written output, but it has completely transformed the way I think. And I, I, I came across it many, many years ago. In fact, I, you know, it was a secondhand kind of knowledge through uh, the work of uh, Professor Michael Borgolte in Berlin, who was um, writing about foundations. And in one of his texts, he talked, um, you know, talked about Marcel Mauss and about the gift. And I have to admit, I hadn't read it. And I picked it up and I really found that, you know, it explained so much about the kind of work I was just embarking on, which was research on charity and remembrance, uh, on the ties that bound the wealthy and the not so wealthy in Byzantium. And Marcel Mauss, who of course, you know, has very little or nothing to do with Byzantium, he, well, you know, he touches at some point on Justinianic law. So one could say there is a little bit of a, an overlap there, but his work is about something completely different. And yet his theory was one that was so clear and so simple. You know, it's one of those texts that you read and you think, why didn't I think of that? You know, it's so obvious and it just makes things, you know, it, it, for me, it was a kind of before and after. Um, after that, I, I kept seeing the ideas of Moss in pretty much everything I, I, I read. You know, you could say, oh, yeah, well, of course, that's also something that Marcel Moss talked about. And we have to say, this is a, a very small book. It was, it was first published in 1923-24 as an article. And it's about 150 printed pages. So it's something that I think anybody could and, and should read, you know, in a few days. And I think, as I hope we will discuss uh, today, it's, I think, very, very profitable. Yes, well, thank you very much. And we might want to ask also Alex to tell us when he encountered the book, or was it for the sake of the podcast, or had he read it before? Alex, what is your uh, connection to the gift? So I had, I admit, I had not read it until last week. However, I encountered much of it in my undergraduate uh, sociological, sociology, anthropology classes. And it was a lot like what Dionysio says. It's kind of so obvious and brilliant without really trying to be brilliant that when I first encountered it, it was presented in a way that is almost like a classic that nobody reads because everybody has cited it already. I, I feel, as, as Alex said, one might be a bit embarrassed because for many people, this is such a foundational book that, you know, they will claim, what does anybody need to tell us about what it is? But I feel that there might be enough people listening who have not read it and who might, you know, appreciate getting a little sense of what this is about. So this is a book of what we now would call, you know, anthropology. 
but it's it's a foundational text from the very early stages of anthropology. It's not an anthropology of the field, that is, Marcel Mauss did not travel to distant places to visit uh, distant tribes and, and, and observe them. It's an anthropology of, you know, from his desk, let's just say. But he was a very widely read man, and he studied various societies, mostly in Polynesia and Melanesia, and he tried to look at how these societies had different concepts about what we would call the gift. And of course, he encountered quite complex phenomena, but after a lot of analysis, which, which happens in the first chapters um, of the book, he could identify certain you know, formulas, certain rules or, or even laws. And this is the, the, the genius part of the book, that these laws that he observed in um, the tribes of Polynesia and Melanesia and also North America, as you will see, they apply to, I think, all of the societies that uh, we're studying, including the Byzantine. So he talks about something that we all know, we're all very familiar. Somebody offers something to someone else. And of course, there's the idea that the gift is something noble, something that is given out of magnanimity, you know, a sense of, um, you know, an open heart and so on. And at what Mouse uh, manages to show is that this is really not the case. This is a complex set of rituals that has three movements. The first movement is, of course, the person who gives something. And the second movement is a person who receives it. And the third, and perhaps the most important of the three moves, is the absolute need to reciprocate. So this ends in being not just you know, about somebody giving somebody else an object, say, but about you know, constructing a way in which society, the social landscape is, is um, structured. A person gives a gift, he has to give that gift because of course, for example, he is wealthy, he is powerful, he wants to show this, these attributes. And of course, by giving a gift, often a substantial gift, an important, expensive gift, he also puts that other person in a sense of inferiority. It's a kind of humiliation, you know, receiving a very important gift. The recipient of the gift must accept it. Otherwise, of course, the honor of the giver would be hurt and that might lead, you know, even to violence. And a refusal to accept it would signal a fear of having to reciprocate the gift and thus also becoming smaller, you know, less important. But the fact that the gift has to be reciprocated and often with a kind of interest, you must give back something that is larger, more expensive, more important, leads to a kind of endless cycle. And in this cycle, I think we can see a way of, you know, social ties being constructed and maintained. But at the same time, this is a movement that, although, you know, it has economic, you know, an economic aspect, it is something that has nothing to do with, say, the market. It's not about supply and demand. It's about something very, very different in what Moss called a total social phenomenon, something that has a legal, an economic, a religious, an aesthetic side, 
and that we can see in, you know, throughout, I think, human history. I, I'd like to think that there is something that if I say to Anna, she will instantly recognize it as we're both Greek. Namely, something that, you know, we definitely grew up with, this notion that in Greece is called hypochreosi, the obligation. If somebody ever gives you something, whatever that may be, you are obliged, you are obligated, and until you return that, and the ideal is that you have to return it, you know, if you've, if you've been invited out to dinner, it has to be an even more lavish dinner. If you've received a book, you have to give back perhaps two books. You have to return that obligation in an amplified form. So I think those of us, perhaps from somewhat less industrialized societies, can recognize what Moss describes in Melanesia in, in very, very easily. And as we were saying, it seems so obvious, and yet it instantly provides a system with which one can understand and start to interpret various motivations and actions that we see in the respective societies that we study, in our case, the Byzantine. We can come back to that in a moment. It's very interesting that we have a Greek scholar, an international Greek scholar, but you are Greek, and an American scholar, and also international American scholar, discussing the gift. And since Dionysius mentioned what you gave some broad parameters about what the gift means in Greek society, contemporary Greek society, I was wondering, Alex, if you could tell us a little bit about the American perspective of the gift in American society now, before we go to Byzantium? Well, first of all, I haven't properly lived in America since 2012 for very long. Last time I was there was last year for several months. But even before the COVID pandemic, the socioeconomic ramifications of, shall we say, rampant individualism which I think we're all quite familiar with, burgeoning, of course, since the 1980s, ha has really reached a point where the kinds of implications that Marzal Maus makes in his conclusion, you almost can't tell the difference whether he's talking about the 1920s or the 2010s. And the kinds of socioeconomic decay that people like sociologists, right? people who read sociologists, like Chris Hedges, for example, or the late David Graeber, right? Or even Thomas Piketty. What they talk about in these kind of post-industrial Western democracies that everybody can, everybody can see, you know, what's going on. They may disagree. We may all disagree about exactly the, the underlying cause, but we all know there's a disease. Of course, um, Marcel Mauss, his, his, his uncle, right, was the great Emile Durkheim, who talked about a, 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 a very social disease, right? When enough people are scraping the barrel to get by and trying to climb up, you know, just a handful of ladders in, in patronage networks and potlatch networks, right? He called this anime, social anime. And it was, of course, you know, around... Long, long before today, long before the, the 19th, early 20th centuries, long before Emil Durkheim wrote about it. And that's why when we think about 
the work of Durkheim, the work of his 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 nephew, the great Marcel Mauss. We're not just, of course, talking about COVID-19. We're talking about what COVID-19 shows us about the society that we live in. I can definitely see this in my own research on the late Byzantine period where things in Byzantium were not looking that well socially, economically, certainly, especially not for the many, is that, of course, the tensions that arise when the balance is broken. There is this uh, wonderful text by Alexios Makremvolitis, the dialogue between the rich and the poor, a 14th century text. And there's an instance where uh, where the poor are, are saying to the rich, well, you know, back in the day, they mean, I guess, the communion period, um, the rich were creating charities and hospitals and orphanages. And, you know, none of us were hungry and you could not hear the cries of the poor all around. And then the rich say, yes, but these were other times. We, we owned the whole world back then. Now we have so little, and the little that we have, we're not going to share with you because then our children will become like you. So understanding that, you know, this, this idea of, you know, the threefold notion is not just something that we impose on our sources, but it's something that contemporary people understood in a way, understood that whatever they were receiving, they were also giving something back and that this was important, that they had something important to offer those wealthy patrons and that this wasn't you know, a market transaction, but it was something much deeper than that. And I, I certainly believe that by engaging in this gift economy, in this threefold movement, the whole of society is, is structured, you know, in, in a way that perhaps can avert some of the enemy, at least some of the times. Yes, okay. But um, would you translate this enemy as lawlessness? What would be a rendition, an English rendition of this enemy for the sake of our listeners? I mean... When it's discussed in English, we, we, we discuss it as enemy typically. I... I've also I've also heard it discussed as social malaise, immiseration. I, I think that it's not so much a lawlessness in that this could exist in, in a state where laws are functioning, but it's the kind of, you know, if I'm allowed to say it this way, a kind of as if the social contract that, you know, we often talk about is broken, yes. as if something is misaligned. Okay. okay. It's that kind of thing. If I may, it's lawless in the same way that Jean Valjean is lawless. Got you. Okay, I hear you. And it's the exact same disease that Marzel Maus really gets at the heart of when, for example, in his conclusion, and also that the great Mary Douglas makes very, very forcefully in her introduction to his work, um, when, when she talks about how the real argument is not between the laissez-faire neoliberalists versus the communists, it's really between the, the continental socioeconomic thought led by French scholars such as Durkheim, who calls it enemy. And like a real apocalypse, which of course you, we all know means the lifting of the veil, that's what we can see with the pandemic shows, which, which of course shows this kind of 
the kind of rampant unfettered individualism, what this does to a, to a whole society over the course of time that has completely forgotten about the give and the take of traditional human nature. Not that there's one of human nature, of course, as many, many versions of it, I'm sure we can all agree. But the brilliance of Marcel Mauss's essay sur le don is that he shows that this is, in fact, a universal basic economy that is neither solely individual nor entirely collective. It is both and neither simultaneously. So I guess in a, in a magical way, this text, you know, 100 years later, almost 100 years later, is, is very meaningful given the situation now. And, and, and there have been many comparisons anyway, because there was a 1918 pandemic and now we have a 2020 pandemic. There have been many, many discussions about the parallels. So uh, it's very interesting. So my question was, you, you said you haven't been in America since 2012, but you grew up there, isn't it? And, and you are a product of this society. So what is a gift for you? Is it something exactly the way Dionysius described it, something that you have to reciprocate, uh, something that you accept and forget uh, that you even got it uh, for you and the society in which you were raised, I mean? So... I think the the concept of hypocrisy, which I mean, roughly you could translate into English as reciprocity, right, is kind of taken for granted, right? Somebody gives you a birthday present. Here, here you go. Here's here's a copy of Walt Whitman's selected verse. Here's here's a chocolate cake. Here's a bottle of whiskey. The trick is, of course, you know, remembering when, you know, writing down who gave you what, keeping it in your little book, right, and then giving them something more valuable, let's say, in a kind of Sheldon Cooper kind of way from that show, The Big Bang Theory, you know, the way he writes all this stuff down, keeps it in his head, you know, gives it back, right? But you gave me this. I need to give you something else. This is so terrible that you gave me this, right? Of course, it explains patronage, which we have in America. What he doesn't talk about and what we do talk about in America is the concept of paying it forward. And this is, I think, a very big part of... Marcel Mauss's legacy, perhaps it's not directly what he talked about, but he does leave this sort of negative space around the concept of paying it forward. Somebody pulled you up, somebody pulled somebody else up, somebody pulled me up, right? Somebody didn't pull somebody else up. How many people did not get pulled up and may, may never get pulled up? There is a concept of paying it forward, which is why somebody pulls somebody up, because of course, the whole concept of bootstraps, which is what I grew up with. Even in the 19th century, it was common knowledge that that was nonsense until, of course, Horatio Alger and Anne Rand and all that. It's, again, a very elaborate answer. If I understand you correctly, uh, there aren't that many differences between Greek and American society um, based on what you just said. So... No, it's just that I think Greek society has a few less oligarchs. Oh, OK. OK, I guess so. I guess so. Yes. The sizes are different, of course, you know, we're a tiny country, so we cannot make any comparisons. But then maybe we can, we can start talking about the gift in Byzantium from your experience and expertise. When I read the book, I instantly found that it 
explained for me some of the things that I was reading and trying to understand how, like what Alex said, patronage and especially charity, which is what I was looking at at the time, functioned. And once you start to look at the texts that we have on charity, for example, something that, of course, uh, Dumperton Oaks was very, very important in, in, in establishing, you know, the, the study of the research of the, the Tipica, the monastic foundation documents, you know, having them all together, you could study them all in one piece, and that made things really, really easier. So once you start looking at the Tipica, which are, of course, usually written or ghostwritten by very wealthy, important people, sometimes even the emperors or the imperial family themselves, about how they wanted, you know, one of their foundations to function. And some of these foundations, of course, also included charitable donations or that could be food distributed at the gate of the monastery. And some monasteries also had charitable institutions like hospitals or old people's homes or, you know, houses for lepers or orphans and so on incorporated into their grounds. So we start there in looking at these texts to see the kind of things that Marcel Moss was describing. And I mean, if we, if we look at the language that is employed, it is very often coined in, in, in ways that suggest, you know, receiving and giving. So I give to God this monastery that I may receive salvation, mercy. And often, of course, you wonder, okay, so the people who went into a hospital that was sponsored by the emperor, like the Pantocrator, you know, what could they offer? So if he was if he was giving that in order to get something back, as you know, Marcel Moss is suggesting, what could the poor and the sick offer him who had, you know, everything? And of course, yes, the there are two things. One is that this gift is asymmetric. There's the asymmetry. They can never give back as much as they receive. And of course, if we follow Moss' reasoning, that means that they instantly become smaller. They become clients. They are not at the same level. And the other thing is that they have something to offer, which was something very much sought after. They can offer mediation. The poor, the sick, the needy, are in Christian terms, of course, ideal mediators before Christ. So the emperor is, if I may put it, you know, very, very roughly, buying salvation by offering food, care, shelter, and receiving the prayers of the poor in return. And of course, lest we think you know, how can you control that? How can you control what people pray for? Well, you know, if, if we look, for example, at the, um, you know, one of my favorites, Tipica, uh, the Tipicon of the monastery of Cosmosotira in, in Thrace, there Isaac Komlinos, the, um, a very troubled individual who probably had a very strong sense of his own personal guilt and sinfulness. So he offers quite a lot he has a hospital and he his are the, the largest donations to the poor in the gates that we have uh, on record. So a hundred poor would be asked to, to come and receive a lavish meal, even a warm meal. And then after that, of course, that's what the Tipicon tell us, they must form a circle and they then they have to get up and say 
40 times, you know, Lord have mercy on his behalf, and then they can go home. And there are, once you start recognizing this, you see it everywhere. There's always, you know, a stipulation. So the sick of the Pantocrator, those at least that can get up, um, you know, they have to perform also a kind of procession within the grounds and pray, God bless the founders. And we start to see that kind of, you know, the asymmetry on the one hand of this gift and the reciprocity, um, it's, you know, it's, it becomes so obvious that, you know, it instantly, that's why I was, you know, talking about a revelation because it instantly makes perfect sense why all these things are happening. Obviously, you know, we don't want to be too cynical. I'm sure that there was a lot of, you know, very noble motivation be behind many of these foundations. But once you start realizing that there are other ways to look at this, at least to look at it as well, then, you know, the piety can be a kind of baseline. So we can all agree that they all were pious and they all wanted to please God. But at the same time, of course, there was much more to this transaction than just something that was offered without any kind of hope or, or desire for something to be reciprocated, to be returned. That was, you know, my take on how Marcel Moss, for example, can help us understand our texts. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Alex, you said that you encountered the book uh, much more recently than uh, Dionysius. And if you would like to tell us a little bit on what you're working on, and then discuss a possible illumination or any kind of a clarification, clarity that the book might have offered you on the things you're familiar with in your research. Thank you. So Dionysios and I, as we've been discussing the book, we share most of the same ideas, the same approaches of historical materialism, not necessarily doctrinaire Marxist by no means, neither of us, I would say, derive from that category. But in order to understand the socioeconomic forces at play in Byzantium, I think it is certainly necessary to understand how the social structure essentially functioned, not just you know on a century to century basis, but also on a week-to-week -week basis, right? And I certainly agree with Dionysios that understanding it from the position of Marcel Mauss's gift in terms of patronage, support, Christian charity. This was just as true, I think, when studying the charitable institutions established by various families and, and, and their tipica, for example, in the 13th in, in late Byzantium, 13th, 14th, 15th century Balkans, as much as it was in 19th century Russia, right? Or early 20th century Russia. So yes, I think there's a direct line from one to the other. And in that regard, perhaps the direction that I, that I follow this, the implications that I follow it are perhaps slightly more schematic. I, I really don't want to say schematic, but I think it really comes down to on a on a metaphysical level, yeah, it's certainly about charity. And on a hard-nosed economic level, I think it comes down to zero-sum thinking because whether we are Byzantines or we are 
Russians or Romans or Greeks or Americans, or perhaps even Malaysians or Chinese or, or Indians. I mean, it doesn't really matter where we're from. I think that the, the merit to the idea of, of Mouse's gift and, and his potlatch societies, you know, the, these societies of gift giving and reciprocity through prayer and thanks developed into something of the feudalist economies where noblesse oblige essentially preserved the social status quo while ensuring the appearance that its preservation was merited due to the value, perhaps metaphysical, perhaps just concrete socioeconomic gifts and homage it perpetuated. This is what we typically, uh, the sociologists call competitive altruism in comparison to the uh, ossification of social structures that it ultimately perpetuated. In this way, we can, we can basically see that even today, in the 21st century, the modern world has essentially become something of a global potlatch village. What are you working on? What is your research on? Uh, the name of my PhD thesis was uh, Ethnicity and Statehood in Pontic Caspian Eurasia from the 8th to the 13th centuries, contributing to a reassessment. I examined Caesarea, Rus, uh, Samanids, Sepharids, Dynasties, Piasts, Arpads, and of course the Rurikids from the 8th to the 13th century, the Pechenegs, the Cumans, and textual and archaeological materials, numismatic, sigillography, et cetera, et cetera, you know, in addition to Byzantine sources, of course, during that period. And I came to two major arguments. The first, that it wasn't the nation which com which converted to the, the form of monotheism in Khazaria Judaism, in Rus Byzantine Christianity, and in, in Hungary and Poland Latin Christianity, in in Volga Bulgaria Islam. It wasn't the nation which converted to the monotheism, but in fact it was the ruler, the dynasty that converted the nation top down. There was of course bottom up to a certain extent until it became top down. And that was not a peaceful transition. That was a quite violent process. And doubly so because the nature of adopting the form of monotheism, whether Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, of course, in the case of Khazaria, the Judaism didn't stick around for very long, but in the other cases it did, was that when rulers, when dynasties uh, adopted a, a form of monotheism, they also adopted the laws, the sacred law codes, which enabled the dynasty to preserve its wealth in perpetuity and to essentially fossilize a social hierarchy, which later on we consider almost feudal. I wouldn't prefer to call it that. That's what it's been called by Marxists, but they use, it's overly theoretical. The beauty of Mouse is that he makes it very, very empirical. This is wonderful. Thank you very much. And what is the second point? You said there are two points, isn't it, Alex? Oh, uh, yeah, I think I made the two points. The first is about ethnicity. The second is about economics. Perfect. Okay. So would you say, I mean, you are working on, on the north of Byzantium kind of broader area, we could say, yeah? Uh, yeah? Would you say that there were practices or Byzantine customs connected to the gift and the gift-giving culture that the north of Byzantium countries adopted or sort of uh, were inspired by Byzantine examples, would you say something like that? Absolutely. They adopted the same laws, um, the same laws 
were just called different different words. I mean, the Nomo Canon, the Byzantine Nomo Canon became the Kormchaya Kniga from 13th century Serbian translations, the the Eklogi, the, the 7th, 8th century Eklogi, then the Prohiron, the Epanagogi became in Slavonic translations that became the Zakon Sudni Ljudim. And so the same laws governing society basically created the same economic system. Did you actually have then foundations, similar situations, similar to the ones described by Dionysius, foundations, charity foundations, offering help or meals or accommodation to poor people for some purpose? Would you, would you I mean, give us an example of a gift-giving situation in your sphere of research? One thing that um, I might, you know, I would ask um, Alex, because um, he has been uh, working on a different project now, which is about, you know, the, the concept of mercantilism that we usually associate with a much, much later period. And this has implications that, you know, one could see how concepts of the gift or, or these ideas could be, for example, applied in, in this idea. So, Alex, would you like to, to give us um, yeah. a sort of, you know, a, a way in which these concepts could apply or, or not, you know, could be, you know, negated by the kind of work that you're doing um, now, which sort of combines ideas of statehood with economic um, ideas, economic concepts, and, and how these are you know, applied and how these are found on the ground, so to say. I think that ultimately value, when it's predicated on a, lim- a limited access to wealth, whether that's measured in gold or land, or in the case of mouse in, 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 in cowrie shells or banana leaves, because resources are ultimately limited by socially imposed limits to accessing them. So we're, we're left in a situation where laws or customs limiting access to resources ensures the wealth preservation by limited numbers of clans, uh, tribes, or dynasties. And because resources are therefore seen as ultimately finite, we result in zero-sum thinking. What's a gain for you is a loss for me and vice versa. At the individual level, this can result in either or both rivalry or, or gift meditation reciprocity, right? Ipochreosi. Uh, however, at the level of cities and kingdoms and organized polities, this results in either or both war and diplomacy. So land and gold are perhaps the most essential manifestations of zero-sum thinking. Gold and land are inelastic commodities, finite resources, and since access to land ownership has traditionally been limited, whether we call it feudalism or mercantilism, they're ultimately two sides of the same coin. And I think it's certainly applicable to Byzantium and the larger Orthodox Ecumeni, right? Because the notion of jurisdiction with regard to the foreign and domestic was not, of course, applicable only in Byzantium or the Byzantine economy, but anywhere governed by Byzantine laws, including Bulgaria, Serbia, Rus, up to the 15th, even later centuries. Because, of course, all rulers, Byzantine, Latin, Rus, were constantly seeking precious metals to pay their soldiers and constantly tempted by coin debasement. So I think that Mouse provided a profoundly empirical method for, for, for textual and archaeological in, inquiry. I mean, so in his case, sociological inquiry. And I think that this is also applicable to mercantilism as a whole in terms of the entire Orthodox ecumeny. 
And I think it's certainly applicable up to the 15th century, if not later. So I, what I would like to pursue for my next project is um, something I call orthodox mercantilism, political economy in the Byzantine Commonwealth from the 11th to the 15th centuries. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. I mean, for me, the important thing is to say that, you know, this very foundational book is, of course, a canvas in a way. It's, it's, it's open and has been used in many, many different ways. I mean, we don't know what's the orthodox way of using it or, or, or not. There's been a lot of, of course, revision. But as uh, Barbara Rosenwein wrote many, many years ago, in fact, all the all the scholars who came after Moss and who tried to, well, you know, revise and 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 maybe even counter, you know, dispute part of his his um, ideas, and you know, they might have succeeded in their respective fields, have not actually destroyed or removed the uh, the importance of the whole of the of his concept, and so. The important thing for me, that's something that I would like to communicate to our listeners, and, and I think that's where you know my ideas and Alex's ideas are, are very different, as you can see, but they take this as a kind of inspiration and try to make sense of you know, the evidence that we have by comparing it, contrasting it, by using Moses' model as a kind of yardstick and then moving forward. So it is true that in Western medieval studies, for example, Marcel Moss is ubiquitous. He's, he's absolutely everywhere. There are, I don't want to say, definitely hundreds of books and, and, and probably thousands of articles. We can't sadly say the same in, you know, for Byzantine studies. It's mostly art historians like uh, Anthony Kapper, Cecily Hillsdale, more recently, who have made, you know, a lot of, who have used Moss in many and, and very interesting ways. And I think that for those dealing with Byzantine social history, economic history, or even political history, it would be of great profit to read the text, reflect on you know, its lessons, and see if they can apply these, you know, his ideas to you know, the different area that they're dealing with. So I talked about charity. One could have explored, I think, you know, remembrance, memoria in a very similar way as has been done in the Western medieval world by Oxle. Um, Michael Bogolte himself used most to talk about foundations, including, of course, monasteries and, and charitable foundations throughout all the major religious cultures of the Middle Ages. And I would be very excited to see what other fields, what other topics one could apply Moses' theory in. And I think that's what I would, uh, I would love for this to be, I don't know, the lesson of today's uh, podcast, to try to experiment with this idea. And if I may finish with, with one thing, which is something that Alex, I think, mentioned a lot in his discussions, one of the things that makes Moss perhaps particularly relevant for our world, our times, is that he wasn't just a great scholar and a very, very active one at that, but he was also very much politically and socially active. And I think that this resonates with a lot of 
especially younger scholars today, who I think rightly feel very passionate about various political projects. And so I think that Moss is, you know, a great scholar for today. As Alex was saying, you know, he, he wrote in the 20s, but he could be in a way writing now. It's because he's very inspiring, because you know that this is a scholar who coupled his research and his knowledge with the quest of what he thought would be, you know, a better society. And that's, I think, what makes him, in my mind, in my eyes, particularly uh, special. Thank you. Thank you very much. Alex, would you also like to make any concluding remarks uh, regarding the text or its value for you and your work? I can only agree with everything that Dionisio said. I think that Marcel Mauss's work is equally applicable for Byzantine studies as it is for, I think, any other time or place um, throughout the world, throughout history, because it is so fundamentally universal for all across the world, all across time, for both economic exchange and for personal and political relationships. And just as it should be and must be applied in Byzantine studies, speaking as a Byzantinist, right? I think it should also be applied everywhere. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, so thank you guys. Thank you very much. I mean, that was fascinating. Every time. Thank you very much. It was a fantastic idea and a, a great opportunity. I, I would say we really appreciate the, um, the invitation and and certainly we both and i and i want to make this abundantly clear we both agree 100% with and and appreciate so much of mouse's ideas even if we may look in take slightly different approaches in other directions yes yes of course this is completely desired this is the purpose because otherwise we would be hearing the same thing you know in a stereotypical type of way so no 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 the contrary this is exactly how it should be so thank you very much. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Podcast musical theme is from the Concerto in E-flat, Dumberton Oaks, by Igor Stravinsky, recorded by the Smithsonian Chamber Orchestra, Kenneth Slowick conducting. As always, thank you for joining us and we hope you join us again in the next episode. Until then, wherever you are, we wish you a wonderful and safe holiday season.